Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. You're on 3RRR on Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. And I'm Fum. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Mic on? Yes. <laughs> no, totally. The mics are on. I just Have you been up since the very wee hours watching a game of soccer? No, like I, have, I have not, but oh. I do get the lowdowns from my friends in the Netherlands, which is my right. team, obviously. Who did win last night. They did too. Mm, they're going through and they'll be playing Argentina. I'm scared already. For those who don't know, we Australia lost. It was incredibly good. They got incredibly close. And, in fact, in the last 30 seconds, (gasps) Gohan Chol had a shot. And it was literally the last 20 seconds. And it was saved by the Argentinian keeper who was a world-class keeper. It was incredible. Oh, you're very keen. I was fast asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we're not going to talk about soccer. We're going to talk about things from the ocean and the coasts and everything related to it. We've got to... Start by thanking Tim, who is timing-wise perfect. That was on the second. He is on the second. He's remarkable. He's a magician. He is. He's a. He's a. He is a craftsman, a magician, <laughs> a, a, a keeper of just this this professional quality. Yeah, yeah. He's he's the Lionel Messi <laughs> of of Triple R, really. Yeah, but friend, really friendlier, is. I think. <laughs> Very possibly. <laughs> very possibly. Oh, dear. Hey, yeah, so we've got a very big show today. Um, we've got a whole bunch of stuff on. We're going to Neil, – Neil Blake, the baykeeper, is going to join us in about 10 minutes or so. And we're going to talk about stewardship, all kinds of types of stewardship, which will be enormous fun. And then we're going reef, really, after that, aren't we? We're going up north. Yes, to the Great Barrier Reef once again that we visit every now and then here on Radio Marinara. We're going to spend um, the rest of the show up there. And um, in the in the week where there's been a lot of conversation about the UN declaring the reef in danger, we thought we'd talk to a tourism operator, Tony Fuentes, who is has been operating on the reef for over 40 years. So he's going to join us live online from the Whit Sundays and we'll have a chat about what it means to the sector, what that means, you know, what he's seen as well over the years. And then... We're going to stay in Queensland <laughs> because we're going to be talking to Connor Clark, who is the director of Plastic Pirates. And uh, That's such uh, a good name. I know, right? Plastic it's, Pirates. It's so awesome. Great. Uh, and we'll be talking to him because he is actually bringing uh, portable plastic pyrolysis machines to Could you say that again? Say that again really quiet. Plastic pyrolysis. No, 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 the fit of the start. What? Portable plastic pyrolysis. <laughs> portable plastic pyrolysis machines. Is that fast ready for <laughs> Try this. Put it back in front of Yeah, exactly. And and we're going to be talking about uh, some of the tests that he's running at the moment, uh, turning plastic, including ocean plastics and potentially even ghost nets, uh, back into fuel and maybe even uh, NAFTA, which is uh, the plastic base material that new plastics are being made of. So we'll be talking about the circular economy. I, I'm really. In, I can't wait. I can't wait to um, to hear this. It's going to be. It's going to be so interesting. Mm-hmm. And you're going to talk closer to your mic. Oh, I'm going to talk closer to my mic. <laughs> Waking up on a Sunday morning. I know, it's a bit like that, isn't it? Hey, now, um, 
I'm really intrigued by this. Now, oh, well, we'll wait. We'll wait till we get to there. But I'm really intrigued by this notion of you bring you bring the treatment to the source mm-hmm. rather than have to track it all. Yeah, and it's it's really it's an interesting time as well because we've just seen that Red Cycle has stopped collecting yeah. the soft plastics yeah. that people have been collecting and bringing to Coles and Woolworths. Um, so you know, what are we going to do? We don't well, want to send it to landfill for pers- the rest of our lives. Personally, like, my landfill bin has just doubled. Yeah, I back know. Again, it's and ridiculous. It's so I'm trying to cut it down, but. It's so depressing to have to go a step backwards, oh, no. isn't it? So, uh, so we'll be we'll be talking with Connor and uh, yeah. uh, listen to uh, yeah what he's got to say about the tests. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Now, we we cover a lot of ocean news on Marinara, and we decided that well, you know, while it's important and we know nothing, you know, seriously over what is this the twenty sixth year of Marinara, we're still finding out stuff about the ocean. But we did think that sometimes it's interesting to move off the earth. And so I was intrigued today. A bit of Martian ocean news. Mm-hmm. Um, I just was really intrigued by some recent stuff. I, it's been in the science media all week and some of you may have seen You probably saw it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. The one where some asteroids hit Mars. In, you know, it's a long time ago. But it was like a, um, a uh, what do they call that one when the dinosaurs died, a, plant, a, a planet killer event or no, a life killer event or whatever. It was that scale. Yeah. So it was a bit like the one that hit Earth when the dinosaurs got wiped out or many of them got wiped out. Um, and so it was a planetary scale impact, but it was three and a half billion years ago-ish. So that's a long time ago. Mm. Anyway, the thing that happened is that they that's when Mars had oceans. It's so hard to like imagine. proper real oceans. <laughs> yeah. Because, and the reason they know is because there's been, there were tsunamis. So there's evidence, and this has come back from the recent um, surveys they've done up there, they've found geological evidence of tsunamis. So you can only have tsunamis, what obviously, What does that look oceans. like? What does... Is- what does geological evidence of a tsunami look yeah. like? I can't imagine it. And, and what it is is really, really big stuff thrown somewhere where it shouldn't be, basically. You know, and so <laughs> that's bold. Your scientific yeah, analysis. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and I apologise to all my geologist friends. <laughs> <clears throat> like really stuff that shouldn't be where it should be. Well, two things. I think there's that, and then there's layers that are interrupted and are suddenly different. You know, and they're kind of whatever sedimentary, I suppose. I'm going to get this all wrong. Yeah, look, I, th- I think that you could see on the photos, I think that there were, you know, because geologists could see like, oh, that's where a water flow used yeah. to be, yeah. um, which is super interesting. So so, so the tsunamis, because they, they threw rocks yes. in different places, yeah. didn't they? And, and I remember way back in that, and this is showing my age, when the whichever one it was landed on Mars in the 70s, mm-hmm. and then we saw the photos for the first time, everyone's going, what are those big rocks doing there? And now we know those big oh. rocks were there because they got thrown there by these tsunamis, the tsunamis that were caused by the asteroids that hit the planet. Wow. Isn't that? So they would have been like planet killers. Like, and, in fact, the, the, the wave size that was being talked about in the media, because there's so much less gravity, obviously, on Mars, yeah. the wave size got me. <laughs> yeah. You know, we do a lot of stuff about big wave surfers here. Can you imagine? The waves they're saying would have had to have been 250 metres. But... 250 metres. I know, but what, what what I find interesting is because there's no water on Mars now, uh-huh. does it mean that that asteroid knocked it out of its orbit? Well, that, I, I didn't go into that, but gosh, that'd be interesting to know. Because now it's a desert. Like, where did uh-huh. that water go? Yeah. An yeah. asteroid shouldn't technically well, it would destroy have been a, water, it was, would it? It, was, it would have been a life 
killer style event, so you never know. I mean, there wouldn't have been there was certainly oh, there no dinosaurs there, bacteria but or something, bacteria or whatever. Yeah. yeah, but the water, yeah. I mean, who knows? It might have knocked it off its. <laughs> You know, it would have been like up here with us, full uh, of water and green. There are and always anyway. more questions than answers with these kinds of things. So there we go. Radio Marinara does extraterrestrial ocean news. Um, <laughs> We've know. just expanded our portfolio. If you have any extraterrestrial ocean news, please get in touch with Radio we should, Marinara. We should have a look at the oceans of Jupiter. I'm sure there's bound to be oceans of Jupiter or the, the moons of Jupiter or something. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I love it, Robert Miles' children. We're going to play um, 90s club music the whole time. If you had a scene, Fum and I in the studio. Which... DJ Anth in the house. <laughs> Put your hands up. Um, which, of course, our guest could see because he could spy. Well, not so much our guest, I beg your pardon, our wonderful colleague could see because he could see me jumping around through the camera. Good morning, Neil Blake. How are you? Oh, oh, I think I've lost him. Have I got you there, Neil? You've got uh, me there, Ant. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, apologies for that. I'm getting my technology all mixed. I'm getting. I'm. I'm getting too excited by the music. For, and I've got. To, I've got. To <laughs> you did a down. good mashup there with the Skype uh, sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was um, the first time children's ever been mashed with Skype. Hey, now, now, um, Neil. It's great to to see. Well, I can see you, but the listeners can't. It's great to also hear you. Um, and as Baykeeper, you've been doing some thinking about. Um, about stewardship and what it means. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know it's a bit of a wacky idea, but uh, um, it's a, it seems like a sensible thing, you know, if we, we need to keep our kitchen in order and uh, you know, make sure that the, all the uh, trash is taken out and uh, we can't keep care of the garden and you know, things are pr- producing for the future, Ant. So uh, it goes pretty much universally from any, any situation from our domestic front to the coast. And so that's what stewardship means, basically kind of just keeping stuff in order and looking after it. Yeah, but, of course, the first thing, though, is to know what there is, you know, to even know what exists out there. So you have to be a little bit curious as well uh, and uh, start making notes on what's happening out there. And so you're having a um, – you're doing a uh, – is it a, is it kind of like a capability-building session with a bunch of community groups at the uh, on Monday? Uh, well, it's actually the AGM of the Victorian chapter of the Australian Coastal Society, uh, and they uh, just felt that it was appropriate to have some sort of presentation, as as you do at AGMs. Uh, and so uh, I was asked if oh, I might be able to sit in on that one and uh, uh, put something entertaining, slightly entertaining for it. So... Uh, I, I'm not. I'm a bit of a fool like that. I'll just step in and say, "Yeah, I can do it." <laughs> <laughs> well, you are entertaining, Neil. That must be said. <laughs> that is very yeah, true. Yeah, hey, now, well, so give us, uh, you know, an and because it is the AGM, it means anyone's allowed to go. And so we'll put the um, the link on our Facebook. I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure the society said we could do that, but uh, <clears throat> hopefully that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> and, double check. And anyone can go and have a listen. And we'll get, like, don't give away all the punchlines, Neil. But what are you going to say? 
Oh, well, basically, I wanted to talk about citizen science, which goes back to that what I mentioned before about uh, making notes on what's actually out there, so we know we're not, you know, we're stepping in the right place, and just to, to, that stewardship is really based on that. And so uh, it really supports what the Victorian chapter strategy is too. They had three three major areas that they wanted to influence thinking in the Victorian industry, and to boost knowledge sharing and capacity building and facilitate networking. And I just think citizen science down on the beach is a great place to achieve all of those kind of outcomes. Uh, totally. I could not agree with you more. Um, and now on the kind of whole stewardship, um, you know, it's kind of related. New book out about jawbone. Marine yeah, century. yeah, that, that, that's great. Sandy Webb has actually uh, put this together and uh, it's a terrific book. It's uh, like an A4 size uh, publication and it's got lots of excellent photographs. Covers the history of you know a bit of the natural history of the area goes right through to the um, creation of the sanctuary. Uh, yeah, a, a, an excellent publication really. That again, an exercise in citizen science. I would have thought you know basically somebody going out diving regularly, collecting photographs, finding out more information about the area and compiling it in a way that is really uh, compelling and, and, and interesting. And it is a remarkable history because, for those that don't know, stand at Williamstown, and it was a rifle range for that's a right, very, yeah, very that's long time. That's covered in the book too. Yeah, so. I was that's just um, by the way. Uh, also, yeah. Bob Whiteway's book arrived on the doorstep basically ah. <laughs> on the same day called Teacher Down Under, and that's a totally different. Uh, concept in terms of the the book, uh, it's basically Bob's story as as a teacher down at Bow Morris High School and getting kids involved in taking a few risks in, in the beach environment, which ultimately led to the creation of the Ricketts Point Marine, Marine Sanctuary. Absolutely, oh, what a legacy! Oh yeah, remarkable, remarkable. You know, both of them remarkable people. Um, I, I was going to I was going to kind of reminisce about the oh gosh. It would be the late eighties, um, or maybe early nineties, when the um, were before all the housing went up, and, and when the rifle range was still um, kind of uh, you know the active. It was just in its final years, and the decision had been made to turn it over. And there was a pre and post survey, and I was lucky enough as a student to get involved as a you know marine ecology student to get involved in the pre and post surveys. And of course, at rifle ranges are really handy places. For that, you don't really need any other regulatory controls because the regulatory controls, if you go and try and poach, you might get shot, yeah. you know, accidentally. And so <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a natural yeah, selection. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a built in kind of regulatory yeah. kind of, you know, conservation <laughs> space. And I've got to say, when we got down there, having, having done surveys on lots of foreshores around the place, we were blown away. Sorry, bad choice of words. We were <laughs> astonished at the size of the stuff, you know, that was in what became the sanctuary. And it's still. It's still bigger than everywhere else, but it had been there untouched. People hadn't been able to poach because you could get shot, um, you know, and it, had, it was remarkable. And so that whole sanctuary, that, that origin, it really set it up. It had, it had been a de facto conservation zone for its entire time of, of white history because that rifle range had been there. And, Neil, what's your favourite part of the book? Favourite part of the book? Oh, well, I don't have a favourite part of the book. They're all, you know, every page is kind of illuminating to me. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Have you seen the books, Fun? No, not yet. I can't wait to get my hands on one. Now, 
The um, we're going to we're going to wrap up. Is there anything anything else on the Baykeepers agenda in the next little bit? Apart from it's a beautiful day and obviously a bit of time in the bay. Yeah, right. Well, I guess um, worth mentioning that uh, the water quality is still not too crash hot out there. So uh, even though uh, there's the beach is um, not technically uh, seen as de- designated as poor water quality, but uh, swimming is perhaps not encouraged at the moment. So this is an unprecedented event in my experience, Ant, in, in the Bay, that the fact that it's uh, remained poor for so long. Yeah, 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 yeah. It just goes to show the La, the La Nina and what has come down the catchments. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if you are fish counting today, be sure to check the EPA's website uh, for water quality before you decide where you're going to go in. Totally. And any last words from you, Neil? Oh, well, Evan, uh, it's been great to be part of the show again for another 12 months, Hans, and it's great <laughs> to see you, uh, Marinara kicking on, and uh, I just say keep on rocking. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant last words there. Neil, we'll see you in 2023. Okay, Cheers, mate. Thanks, Neil. Uh, Port Phillip Baykeeper, Neil Blake there. So we'll put the link up to the um, to his presentation on, um, I think it's Monday, we'll put it on Facebook later today. Yes, Monday. And uh, I'm you thinking we might, uh, we might need to get Sandy on to talk about her book at some oh, stage I think it's as great well. Right? I mean, she's just, yeah, it'd be fantastic to hear. Yeah, an amazing piece of work. So just a quick plug. Um, I mentioned it a few times already. Uh, we're wishing the fish counter a great fish count this weekend. It's still going for a few weeks. Um, Dive to You is doing one at Rye Pier at 10am. Still lots of teams going out in the next two weeks as well. Um, And I just wanted to plug a very special one, which is the good folks from Queer Nature Connection uh, are teaming up with Diveline Scuba Centre next week on Sunday at 10.30, somewhere on the Mornington Peninsula. So if you are a member of our beautiful rainbow community, you can join the Queer Nature Connection group on Facebook and get all the details and get in the water next week uh, and count some fish. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Um, you are on Radio Marinara. We're going to, in a week, this week, uh, we saw UNESCO and the IUCN recommend that the Great Barrier Reef be, released, be listed as World Heritage in Danger, which is a specific category. Um, we also heard the federal government suggest that it should not happen, um, which is actually the same as what the last federal government said, but for actually quite different reasons. <laughs> the last mob didn't believe in climate change. The, um, we talked a lot about the science. We, so we, we talk a lot about the science of um, the Great Barrier Reef and climate change and climate adaptation here on Radio Marinara. So instead of doing that again, oh, we know that's a sad story, but instead of doing that again, we wanted to talk to someone who actually runs a business on the reef, who depends on the reef and works with the reef day in, day out, um, and is in the water and has probably been in the water for a very long time. So Tony Fons is uh, is a veteran dive tour operator in the Whitsundays, and he joins us on the phone live from the Whitsundays this morning. Good morning, Tony, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Thank you, Anthony. Good to be here. Yeah, no, it's wonderful that you can join us this morning. Um, hopefully we're not keeping you out of the water. Now, you've been diving on the reef on and off for what? It must be at least 40 years. What's the kind of what, – what, what changes have you seen in that time? Well, you're right. It's been 40 years plus a little bit. <clears throat> and I've certainly seen the reef at its best. There's no doubt about it. But over the years, um, I've seen a 
serious decline in its health, a degradation of what you do see. I should note that, of course, the Great Barrier Reef is huge, 2,300 kilometers long, and it's comprised of 3,000 individual reefs or something like that. And not every reef has you know, suffered degradation. However, every location, there will be some reef that's been hit by this or that. And so over the years, there's been a slow decline in reef health that is visible. And is that that is that in the number of coral, the type of coral, the kind of quality of the coral, the, the amount of algae? Is it kind of, is that the kind of stuff you're seeing? Exactly. All of the above. Yeah. Uh, corals, of course, form the foundation of the reef. They're the building blocks and everything out there depends on a healthy coral reef. You know, the fish, the turtles, the clams, the starfish, and so on. And it's the corals that are impacted mostly by, these days, climate change and historically water quality. And as you lose corals, then you lose the life that goes along with the corals. Have you seen a, a decline in fish life as well over the years? Well, that takes a little more of a scientific eye, which I don't have, although I can say I've dived on reefs that were bleached, and bleaching doesn't necessarily necessarily mean the reef will die, but unfortunately, it can die. So I've seen large patches of dead reef, and there's very little fish life. I've seen large patches of dead reef due to cyclones, and there's very little fish life. Now, I mean, and as I mentioned in the intro, your business depends on on the reef, and 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 you know, you've been running dive tours for 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 decades up there. Have you? Do you get a sense from your customers over time that they're noticing the difference? Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, when you get veteran divers who travel the world to dive the best of coral reefs, whether it's the Caribbean or the Great Barrier Reef or Roger Ampat. They're the ones that would compare it to what they've seen in the past, and in some cases it doesn't compare well. But there are places, plenty of places on the Great Barrier Reef, as I said, that are still in relatively pristine condition. So if we can get out to those, then uh, there's very little noticeable. On the other hand, your average punter, like your snorkelers and, and overseas people, um, who have limited experience on a reef don't know the difference, and so they think it's wonderful, which is great, which is great, but it's simply a matter of um, the goalposts have been moved. They don't know what they're not seeing. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and Tony, I'm wondering, because obviously, you know, you're part of a larger tourism industry that depends on the reef. And I'm, I'm just wondering, what is, what is kind of the, uh, the discord or the vibe in, in that commercial diving community about the problems with the reef and also, you know, this, this international, uh, you know, this UN situation where the reef should be, you know, um, listed as endangered? What, is, what are the opinions in your um, experience? Uh, kind of twofold. First of all, if you're talking about Great Barrier Reef tourism as a whole, unfortunately, the tourism industry has uh, kind of got their head in the sand in regards to the the plight of the reef because they don't want people to know that the reef is in trouble. It might impact on visitor numbers. Hmm. The dive operators tend to, obviously, they can't help but see the reef, be a little more focused and are a little more willing to talk about it. But Basically, the tourism industry as a whole would like it just to go away. As you can imagine, with the World Heritage, 
uh, listing in danger, the recommendation that tourism operators are, uh, have no interest in that at all because they truly believe it will impact tourism. However, there are very few of us that don't agree. And one of the reasons I don't agree is because there have been studies, proper studies done with other world heritage sites that were put in the endangered listing, and they saw no significant decline in tourism numbers. And I believe that would be the same for the reef. We need to remember that the Great Barrier Reef is not the only reef in the world impacted by climate change. So wherever you go, you're going to face the same problem. So whether you go to the reef or, or the Philippines, uh, there's going to be climate change damage. It's a really good point, Tony. And I, I, a personal anecdote: um, we um, we were recently up in um, uh, off Townsville, staying on Magnetic Island, and we're off Townsville, and we we um, snor- we snorkeled out in John Burr Reef, and it was the and it was beautiful. It was the be- it was some of the best quality reef I've seen. I've dived on the reef for, for many years. Some of the best quality that I've seen for a long time. Um, and the reason we went, because um, this goes to the motivation, is because my twelve year old said. In lockdown, we watched a whole lot of stuff about the Barrier Reef and he said, it's going to go, I want to see it before it goes. And in fact, I I wonder whether bringing that notification of the danger, the in-danger status is actually going to see a bump in, in tourism because people would say, I've got to get there. And so when more people get there, more people might see that they, it can be saved and then the, the cycle is kind of, you know, because then they go home and they go, hang on a minute, we've got to do something about the climate change thing. I, I don't know, what do you think about that kind of, you know, changing of motivations for going there? Well, I would agree with everything you just said, Anthony. In fact, um, the idea of see it before it's gone has its own name in tourism circles oh. called extinction tourism, <laughs> which is a bit tongue-in-cheek and if you were... Uh, big tourism operator with millions of dollars in boats and infrastructure, you wouldn't think it's so funny because you need more than one or two seasons to earn any money back. And what I really liked was that that you pointed out that when people come and see the reef, see its beauty, whether it's perfect or not, is neither here nor there, understand what it's facing in the future, then they will be motivated to do more. And in danger listing, I've always said that it can only help the reef and it can only help tourism indirectly because when people come out here and they see what tourism operators are doing today to protect their patch of reef and the fact that many tourism operators offer the guests the opportunity to get involved in citizen science programs, then they can only go away with a positive experience. And that's a much better PR campaign than um, hiding their head in the sand. Uh, absolutely. And I, I was actually, the, the operator we went with, I was super impressed with. In fact, they were probably harder line than I would imagine any regulator would be <laughs> because they were kind of going, we need this quality to stay here because we're bringing people every day. Hey, so Tony, you've, you know, as, as we talked about, you've seen a bit of decline and you've talked, we've talked about the endangered listing. Is there anything else from your perspective that we could do, you know, either locally or as a country to try and, you know, protect and and, and, um, and shore up the reef as much as we can? Well, yes, there is, although it's, it's uh, well, if you're in, as you were in Townsville and stuff, then, you know, you'd be encouraged, I would encourage you to go with the greenest operators, get involved in their citizen science program, uh, reef regeneration projects, and that can, that can make a, a big difference. It builds reef resilience. When you're outside of the reef, 
you've got a more important job because no matter what we do in regards to building reef resilience with on the ground, underwater coral regeneration programs, it'll all be smashed by climate change if we don't rein in our carbon emissions and try and hold the global temperature to 1.5. And this is well documented by the IPCC reports that have come out over the last few years. And unfortunately, we seem to be on track for 2.0, which Again, the IPCC reports would suggest we'll lose 99% of coral reefs on the planet, and that includes the Great Barrier Reef. So at home, what people can do is stand up for the reef. I mean, our government, we've had a change of government, and uh, I heard your comment before I came on, which I have to agree 100%, the previous government didn't believe in the reef or climate change. But the current government is making some big steps towards uh, better uh, climate climate uh, controls, so to speak, but not enough. So we need to continue to push them. We need to, you know, they're talking 43% reduction in carbon emissions by 2035. The science says 75% by 2030. We can't open new coal and gas. The current government is opening coal and gas hither and yon. Um, so there's a lot that you can do at home by becoming a reef advocate politically. Fantastic, Tony. Thank you so much for joining us. I suppose you're in or on the water today and we wish you well up there and um, looking forward to being on one of your boats when I'm in the Whit Sundays next time. Well, that'd be great. You're always welcome. Thank you. No worries. Thanks so much, Tony. Thank you, Tony. Tony Fonz from um, the Whit Sundays, a veteran tourism operator with uh, um, a, an industry perspective. Um, it's It's so refreshing to hear evidence-based um, industry perspectives exactly. that, are, that are, you know, when you're right at the coalface, you're kind of going, hang on, this stuff is happening and, and there are solutions here. And I really love um, Tony's kind of suggestion that we all become ambassadors, basically. Yeah, exactly. So make make good choices in your daily lives. You know, you influence every choice you make influences everything else. And we need to remember that. Yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Hey, you're on Radio Mara, and now it is over to you, Fum. Oh, so I'm very excited um, for this next segment because, I mean, obviously lately we've seen that collapse of the soft plastics recycling scheme that I mentioned earlier mm. by Red Cycle, um, which was the scheme where you could bring your soft plastics to Woolworths and Coles supermarket and they would um, uh, make sure that it, you know, gets recycled, um, but it's not really economical, economically viable anymore to to do this. And so that whole scheme collapsed. And now we're all sad because we have to bring mm. our plastics, you know, put it back in, in the, the bin into landfill, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is not a great thing, obviously, losing all of that, um, all of those resources. Uh, and But with Australia pushing towards a circular economy, other inventions and solutions are starting to emerge now. And, and one of those is currently in the testing phase. So I would love to introduce um, Connor Clark, who's the founder and the captain of Plastics <laughs> Pirates, uh, which is a for-purpose company based in North Queensland and they solve problems with plastic and they have a strong focus on ghost nets and marine debris and they are bringing small-scale mobile pyrolysis units to the Australian market to provide solutions for industry, communities and develop um, so-called industry-specific hmm. circular economies as well. Welcome to the show, Connor. How are you? 
Thank you. Good, thanks. How are you this morning, Sam? Yeah, really good. We've just been rocking out on all kinds of 90s music, but it's back to serious business now because, um, yeah, you ha you are bringing something to the table which is really, really interesting in, you know, in the world of where we are literally drowning in plastic pollution. Uh, and, and those are mobile pyrolysis um, units. Now, first of all, what is pyrolysis, plastics pyrolysis actually do? And, and what's the difference with incineration? Because I, I understand that sometimes the community tends to confuse the two. Indeed, yeah. Um, plastics py well, pyrolysis is a technology whereby um, plastic is fed into a reactor, which is around 500 degrees in temperature, and it's an oxygen-free environment. So that is the actual point of difference between pyrolysis and incineration. Um, where we remove the oxygen uh, part of the triangle and the plastic is vaporized. It turns into a gas. Uh, we cool the gas at different temperatures and get a fuel outcome um, with our units, um, very uh, usable fuel directly from the back of the machine. So um, our emissions are a lot less than incineration and our energy production is a lot higher. That's so interesting. So, so basically, under those high temperatures and without using any oxygen, it breaks down. It breaks down those those polymers into like more the original components of plastic. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So, plastic is made of um, carbon monomers joined together to form polymers, and chemicals are added um, to form different types of plastics. Um, and so, with um, vaporizing the plastic, it um, it breaks those chains down and returns it to its original form uh, of fossil fuels. Well, it's a derivative of fossil fuel anyway, so yeah. And, and so, so you can make different types of fuel based on different plastics, is, is that right? So, so what sort of outputs would you get in terms of uh, fuels that can be used? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, the innovation of the um, South African company Scaraptec um, means that we can target specific fuel types, um, specifically um, diesel-type fuels, and all the way through up to NAFTA-type fuels, which are the actual building blocks of plastic. So that opens up a whole new concept of making plastic from plastic, which is really exciting. Connor, I've just, it's Anthony here, I've just understood the... So, so, so you get the plastic and you put it in and out comes... What I guess it's kind of at this point a renewable fossil fuel is that thing? like because you're basically <laughs> reusing the original resource again. That's extraordinary. Absolutely, yeah. And you can um, be able to reuse that same plastic feedstock over and over again um, to keep the fossil fuel where it is, where it should be in the ground, yeah. and use the plastic resource that is all around us everywhere. Um, and, and do you know, like, do you lose, I don't know, do you lose, like, a percentage of it each time? There's a certain percentage that um, is non-condensable, um, and we've got some uh, innovations going on around that where we'll be able to use that uh, those non-condensable gases to provide the power for the machine as well, so... Um, essentially, we'd be able to use all of the power, um, all of the energy generated from the process in order to 
um, not use power from the grid um, and keep things going all by itself. So, yeah, Absolutely wow. extraordinary, and I, I, I love this for us, Anth. This is so exciting. <laughs> As, no, it's remarkable, isn't it? Why, like, I, I've got to ask, like, why hasn't this happened before? Why, is it, why, why does this yeah. not already happen? Yeah, why hasn't this happened on a large scale yet, Connor? Well, in Australia, it's, um, it's quite a um, – it presents its own form of challenges, really, just because of the geographical nature of Australia where um, distances are very large and typically powerless units – uh, between the 10 and sort of up to 25 and more tons a day of feedstock that needs to be transported to a centralised location. Um, these machines are between five and 800 kilograms per day and they're in a mobile um, application. So it means we can take the solution to the problem and create usable fuel from the back of the machine, which is pretty much almost the first in the world like it. Um, most pyrolysis um, units produce a... Uh, a fuel type that needs further refining to be able to use to be used directly by the consumer, and the two refineries that are left in the country are um, operating to capacity with no opportunity to refine pyrolysis oil um, instead of fossil fuel oil. So yeah, um, and also yeah. not to mention you know the emissions of all those trucks that have to bring the plastics to those particular plants. Um, you know that that obviously also counts in the in the emissions scheme. Um, now you know this is obviously on the. <laughs> On the top of my lips, because you know, being a marine biologist who 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 um, researches plastic pollution, one of the problems with plastics recycling is you know of marine plastics is that they have biofouling, so they've got all kinds of like algae and things like that growing on them when they've been in the environment for a while. Is that going to be an issue with a pyrolysis machine? Like, do they need to be clean, or can you just chuck in ocean plastics that you find on the beach? <laughs> um, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, um, uh, ghost nets are incredibly, uh, they're probably the worst things possible that I've ever come across, really. Oh, absolutely. Um, so large sort of organic material needs to be removed for sure. Um, sand, not really such a problem. And minor organics, not really such a problem either. Um, they form a, a bio or a pyo char, which is, basically pure carbon. Um, that's the only real solid um, emission that we have, and that can be used for road base and roof tiles, etc. cetera. Um, fire retardants and some plastic um, recycled products. Um, but the salt is a little bit of a concern or a little bit of an issue, although our um, testing so far hasn't uh, made any, uh, given us any sort of cause for alarm. Um, we're haven't washed any just yet, um, but we have uh, used some marine plastic collected on the beach and pyrolyzed into some really good-looking fuel. So That's amazing. Um, Amazing. Thank you, Connor. We are nearly running out of time. It is so interesting. And I know you are testing all of this at the moment. Uh, so I would love to get back in touch with you in a few months time or maybe a year's time and see where you're at, because obviously uh, we're a show about solutions as well as problems. And uh, we would love to stay in touch with you. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show and, and giving us this little glimmer of hope on a Sunday morning. <laughs> That's a pleasure, Sam. Thank you very much. That Likewise. was Connor Clark, Thanks. founder and captain of Plastics Pirate. Right.
And uh, wow, we have come to the end of the that show. That is already, remarkable, yeah? though, isn't, isn't it? it? That, like you know, it's like, you, this is a mobile thing, and you take it down and you feed the stuff that you find on the beach into it, and out comes fuel that can be reused. Yeah, again. it's the size of about a shipping container, so it's easy to transport. And, and I realise it is a pilot, and I realise that that there's right. But you're right; the music is playing, and we're coming very close <laughs> to the end of the show. As the doctors are all lined up; they're ready to go. Um, I, this is my last show for 2022. And yours as and well? mine, yes. Cool. So this is goodbye for us and all of you have a safe and wonderful summer. And um, next week is our final show, the whole show. Happy and, holidays, um, everyone. And the others. Everyone's going to do all kind of things to do over summer. Um, we want to thank Tony Fonts. We want to thank Connor Clark and, of course, our baykeeper, Neil Blake. And um, have a good Chrissy and New Year and have a great day today. See ya. Bye. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.